This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians this morning, if you would. We're continuing our series entitled Magnify Jesus. If you missed any of the messages so far, you can always get caught up at our website at whoecala.church. Uh, subscribe to our podcast. Uh, download the Whoecala app, because if you do that, you can actually click on the, the uh, uh, button that says podcast and click. And uh, actually follow along with the notes for today's message by clicking the, the fill-in notes. You can, it'll actually open up a web browser. You can type in your notes there if you want to do it that way. Or just write down some thoughts uh, as we go through this passage this morning. Today we found ourselves in Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27. And I'm just going to give you a heads up. Get comfortable here because we're going to be here for probably three, possibly four weeks, uh, depending on how it all shakes out. Uh, but there's just so much meat in this uh, um, passage. I don't want to leave any on the bone when we get done with it. So again, we're probably just going to get through the first phrase here today uh, in Philippians 127. But uh, just to give you a little bit of context and refresher, again, Paul started the church at Philippi from scratch. It was his first church uh, that he started on his second missionary journey. Uh, first church that he planted in Europe, which this would have been the, the area now known as Greece. Uh, and so he uh, planted a church there, left it, came back, uh, or actually about 10 years later, writes them a letter from prison. And that's the, the book of Philippians that he wrote to them. These are folks that were really good friends to Paul, great encouragement to them. There's a lot of joy, a lot of love uh, in this uh, passage of, of scripture, it's the book of Philippians. Uh, and so we find that this morning. One of the things you find in verse in chapter number one that he goes back to again and again and again is the gospel. Talks about their partnership in the gospel, the way that they work together for the faith of the gospel. And we'll take a look at that this morning, how the gospel relates to the way that we live our lives. We've entitled today's message, Walking Worthy of the Gospel. Philippians chapter one, verse number 27. Only let your conversation, the word conversation means the way that you live your life. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Whether I come see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're going to focus on that first phrase there. Let your conversation, the way that you live your life, be becoming of the gospel of Christ. I grew up in church my whole life. Uh, three times a week, my parents uh, had me and my brother in church. My parents were really kind of first-generation Christians, didn't really know what it meant to be a Christian. They just knew that it was important that me and my brother were in church, and I'm thankful for that. And this is a good place to kind of pause for just a second. This isn't part of the message. It was just good life advice. My parents didn't know a lot about the Bible and didn't grow up in a strong Christian home, but they knew certain things that they needed to do, and they just did those. So I would encourage you, be obedient to what you know, and then just allow God to continue to, to grow you and develop you from there. But uh, the, the church that I grew up in was a Baptist church uh, in the fact that they believed everything that you and I would believe about the Bible. Uh, they believe uh, salvation through Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, by God's grace alone, uh, that once we're saved, we're always saved and kept in the hand of God until the day of redemption. They believe that uh, you know those who didn't trust in Christ would go to hell and be separated from God for all of eternity. So from a standpoint exactly the same from a practical standpoint the church that I grew up in couldn't be any different than this 
The type of church that I grew up in, really the home that I grew up in was this, that the, the Bible gave us a good moral code. It gave us a good overarching structure to work from and to work with, but it didn't necessarily have any direct impact on our day-to-day life. And the fact that uh, we would pray before me, uh, we would pray if somebody was sick or in the hospital and things like that, but we didn't pray on a regular basis. Uh, we didn't really didn't read our Bibles outside of uh, cracking them in church and turning to a passage of Scripture. Uh, I, I, I really can't remember uh, anything that we did outside of church that would have been, you know, faith-related, uh, per se. And that really bled over into the, our, our church really kind of operated in the way that they, they, they function and the fact that the kids that were in the youth group that I grew up in really weren't different than the unsaved kids that I went to, to school with in public school. I remember on Sunday mornings, a lot of times the kids in our youth group would be talking about, uh, you know, parties that they went to that weekend and who would hook hooked up with somebody else, whether or not somebody had gotten high the night before. And it's the same conversations that I would hear um, at school on Monday morning amongst unsafe people. And I remember thinking to myself, this just doesn't feel right. I remember our, our youth group of probably, I would say 25 kids or so. One of our, the girls uh, got pregnant out of wedlock at 16 years old in our youth group. And our pastor's son at 16 years old got his girlfriend pregnant out of wedlock as well. And I remember to, thinking to myself, that's almost 10% of our entire youth group has been involved in not only sexual immorality, but have gotten uh, people pregnant out of wedlock. And I remember thinking to myself, uh, we had a, a meeting one night after church with all the church members where the pastor talked about it and what had happened with his son and things like that. I remember going home that night on the way home and telling my dad, things like this shouldn't happen in church, should they? And he says, well, you know, things like this, it just kind of happens and, you know, we, we just forgive each other and kind of move on. But I remember thinking to myself, if the Bible's true, the Christians shouldn't be caught up in the same things that unsafe people are caught up in. And I remember in my heart at that time just feeling a little bit of unrest. Uh, the pastor of the, the church that, that I grew up in uh, would come by my dad's body shop from time to time and talk with the guys that worked for my dad. He would be out there telling inappropriate jokes and sometimes uh, making racist statements and things like that. I remember thinking to myself, this shouldn't be the case here. I remember at the... Uh, the church that I grew up in, there was a, a section out back uh, where the deacons would go out and smoke cigarettes and uh, gossip about people in our church before church started. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself as a kid, I don't really think that's the way that Christians should act. So fast forward to 18 years old, graduate high school, leave for uh, the Navy. I found myself saying what a lot of people I've heard from time to time say, I believe in God, I believe the Bible, but church is for fakes and hypocrites. Maybe you've said that before, maybe you've heard somebody say that before, but I can tell you that was my experience and I really didn't want anything to do with church whatsoever. Now, because I'd grown up in it my whole life, I felt guilty when I didn't go to church, so from time to time I would uh, attend church uh, sporadically, maybe once a month, every other month, something along those lines, just to kind of quell my conscience, uh, make myself feel better, but I didn't find any value in those things. Fast forward to Angela and I getting married, uh, our dating relationship, we had, had, had both said when we first started dating that we were both Christians and we wanted to try to live our life according to what would honor and please the Lord uh, and things like that. When we got married, we didn't really have a plan for church. I remember we had, um, uh, we're looking for a church. We had just gotten stationed here. It's our first duty station together as a married couple. We were excited about that and we're starting to get settled in. I said, maybe we should look for a church. And so we tried, uh, no lie, at least a dozen Baptist churches and, and none of them were a fit. We didn't really, first of all, know what we were looking for, but we knew that that wasn't it. And so we, she had uh, grown up Methodist, and she said, well, maybe we should try the Methodist church. And so we Googled Methodist church. We didn't Google. We probably Alta Vista. Uh, uh, this is back in uh, 99. Oh, nobody knows what Alta Vista is. Sad times. Uh, anyway, 
Carolina Methodist Church and the, the Methodist Church over on Baratania Street, still there to this day. And I can still remember in my mind the day that we were walking across the parking lot and we had our Bibles in our hands going to, to church there. And the guy in the, in the parking lot goes, hey, what do you got in your hands there? And I said, we brought our Bibles. And he goes, oh, don't worry about that. You won't need them. Oh, and he says, and if you ever did need a Bible, we've got some in the back of the pews. And I thought to myself, oh, okay. And so we went and sat down, and no lie, we did not crack our Bible the entire time. Uh, people referenced vague thoughts in the Bible about loving your neighbor and things like that, but there was never any quotation of Scripture. The Bible was never read. And it was more of kind of like a, a let's be nice and be good this week kind of message. And I walked away from that going, my word. And I said, ask Angela, I said, is that normal? And she goes, what part? I said, all of it. She goes, yeah, what was wrong with that? I was like, they didn't even crack the Bible. And she said, were they supposed to? Yes, they were. So again, we didn't know what we were looking for. We, we were just baby, baby Christians. And so what changed our life forever is we found a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church where people just think that the Bible was good. They actually lived it. And I'm telling you this for the first time in my life. In my life, I saw authentic Christianity in action. And we attended church there for probably three weeks in a row. And I told Angela, I don't know what kind of church this is or what kind of people these people are, but this is who we want to be. These people make decisions in their life based off of the Bible. These people live their life based off the Bible. And these people are way different than any other Christians I've ever met in our life, ever. And this is what I want. And man, God began a work in us. And we began to crave the things of God because we saw that God's word is true, but hypocritical and carnal Christianity had drawn us away from the beauty of who Jesus Christ was and the value that was found in God's word. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to jot a few thoughts down. First of all, I want you to understand this. That when Paul talks about living a life that's becoming of the gospel, we need to understand, first of all, that the gospel has power. This is the most powerful message in all the world, the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ died for sinners and will save all those who believe in him, that is the power, that's the good stuff, that's what we're after, that's what we desire, that's what has the ability to change the world. Somebody asked me this week, what do you think about it? everything's going on with the election, the next president, and I said the same thing. I frankly really could not care less. I really can't. I love America and I love it dearly, but I know that our hope is not found in who's president. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ. So I'm a lot more concerned with what we as a church are doing to get the gospel out than what's taking place in, in Washington, D.C. Who's sitting in the Oval Office today doesn't matter as much as what is our church doing with the gospel. On the, the racks that we have on the side here, and when you walk out today, our ushers will have packs of five of the little green invite cards that we have. On the back of those is five verses that we call the gospel, the good news. The word gospel that's used here in this passage is the Greek word euangelion that literally means good news, good message, or good tidings. So when we say the gospel is good news, the word gospel literally means the words good news. The word euangelion is also where we get our word evangelize or evangelical uh, from time to time. I don't necessarily like the term evangelical because a lot of times things get roped in with that uh, label. I do like the term born-again Christian because it's a Bible term. Uh, and so if I was going to self-identify as anything, I'd self-identify as a born-again Christian. But the word 
euangelion, where we get our word gospel, the, the middle word there is angel, which actually literally means messenger. And so the, the job of an angel is to be a messenger on behalf of God. The word, of the, the word gospel literally means good news or good message, though. So why is the gospel so powerful? Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse number 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek Friend, there is no salvation apart from the gospel. There's no hope apart from the gospel. There's no forgiveness of sins apart from the gospel. And you and I need to be well-versed in the gospel. The gospel says this, God loves you. God loves every single person on planet Earth, regardless of who they are or what they've done. God loves you dearly. And he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel also tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us have broken God's law and stand in danger of God's judgment because sin has a price that must be paid. I'm just going through these. God loves you, you've sinned, sin has a price that must be paid. The price that must be paid is God's punishment and wrath for all of eternity in a place called hell. That if you die in your sins, you'll be separated from God for all of eternity in a real place that burns with real fire for all of eternity called hell. It's the worst news you could ever hear in your entire life. But that's what you deserve. That's what I deserve because we've broken God's law. We've sinned against him. Now, the good news is, is that Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter five, verse number eight, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for sinners. And if you're a sinner, and you are, Jesus died for you. You see, I was supposed to die, but Jesus died for me. I was supposed to be punished, but Jesus was punished for me. I was supposed to receive God's wrath. Jesus received God's wrath and punishment for me. I was supposed to be separated from God, but Jesus was separated from God so that he could pay for my sins. God loves you. You've sinned. Sin has a price that must be paid. Jesus paid the price for you. Here's the critical part of the gospel. You must make your own decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Every person on, human, on planet Earth, every human being in human history has been offered the opportunity of salvation through Jesus Christ. The only thing that you must do is truly believe faith and truly repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus if you'd be willing today to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he's died for my sins. I believe that he is the only way to heaven. I'm asking God today to forgive me and save me from my sin. The Bible says that you can be saved immediately. You don't have to join a class. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to do any of those things. You just need to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And if you would do that, you would be saved or born again. By being born again, that adopts you into God's family. That's what makes you a Christian. And that's why there's power in the gospel because it can save anyone. There's no one that's so far away from God that they cannot be saved, cannot be forgiven. But the gospel, it also has transforming power. The gospel changes people. My life has changed because of the gospel. I'm not the person that I was 10 years ago because of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is not that you just need it one time for salvation. The good news of the gospel is that you get to come back to it every day if you need forgiveness of sins. If you need to be made right with God, you can always come back to that place where you found forgiveness at the cross of Christ and say, God, forgive me, I've sinned. And God says, you're forgiven, son, daughter. Go and sin no more. 
the gospel gives us access to God. And the gospel has the ability to change us day by day. Romans chapter 12, verse number two says, be not conformed to this world. That word conformed means to be pressed into the mold of, but be transformed, changed by the renewing of your mind that you may see what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God wants to change your life from the inside out. That's the power of the gospel. You see, the world wants to put you into its own mold. And if you and I reject the mold of the world, let me just tell you this today, that we're gonna have labels slapped on us. Again, I like the label of born-again Christian. I'll wear that proudly. I don't have a problem with that. But I don't want labels like racist, bigot, homophobe, left-wing, right-wing, things along those lines. I don't like labels like that because they're not helpful. And again, when we try to broad brush any group of people, we're always going to make mistakes when we do that. But I'm not gonna be conformed to this world. I'm not gonna do what the world tells me to do because I want to be what Jesus has called me to be. And the gospel has transforming power. See, Ephesians chapter four, verse 21 says, if so be that you have heard him, speaking of Jesus, and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that if you put off concerning the former conversation, again, the way that you used to live as the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new man. See, Ephesians 4 talks about putting off the old man, putting him to death, being renewed, and then putting on the new man. And that's what the gospel gives us access to. My marriage doesn't have to be the same as it's always been because I have the hope of the gospel. I don't have to be who I've always been because I have the hope of the gospel. My kids can be changed and transformed by the hope of the gospel. It's powerful. That's why those little invite cards that we have, when you pass those out and you go, well, I passed them out and nobody came to church. (laughs) The goal isn't that people would come to church. The goal is that people would be saved, that people would be changed by the power of the gospel. Look, we've given away invite cards and people have gotten saved. They're never darkened the door of a church. That's okay because their sins are forgiven. They're now a child of God. Now, if they want to be an obedient and growing child of God, they need to be in a church. But look, at the end of the day, that's between them and God, not between them and us. So the gospel itself has massive, massive power. The transformed life puts the power of the gospel on display. When you and I change to be more like Jesus, that draws attention to the gospel. When I was in high school, there was this uh, theory that was going around. It was incredibly popular called lifestyle evangelism. And the idea was this, that if you live like a Christian, then after time, the people around you will ask you, why don't you curse? Why don't you go to parties? Why don't you do these things? And then you'll have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And the premise on the outset is very, uh, very good. Live a consistently Christian life so it draws attention to Christ. I'm all for that. But the problem is, is that you might be, take you two, three, four, five years before somebody asks you what's different about you. I think that our lifestyle evangelism should be coupled with confrontational evangelism. And by confrontation, we don't mean starting fights with people. We mean confronting them with their need for Christ. Hey, Joe, have you ever thought about what happens when we die? What do you think what do you think's waiting for us on the other side? Oh, that's interesting. I'm I'm a Christian and I believe X. I mean, we just open up the opportunity for confrontational evangelism, confronting them with their need for Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. Many times people want to be all outspoken in their evangelism but don't live a life that backs it up. That actually draws 
attention away from the gospel. And we don't want to do that. But when you look at somebody's life who's truly been changed from the inside out by the power of the gospel, man, that makes Jesus look good. I was thankful for one of the ladies in our church that uh, emailed me last week after we talked about suicide and depression. And she said, Pastor, I've experienced infidelity in my marriage. I've experienced depression. I've taken medication. I've been in a psychiatric ward of the hospital. I've been suicidal. But God's brought me through all of those. And if there's any ladies in our church that I could help with that, please let me know. I would love to talk to them. Oh, man. You know what that is? That's the power of the gospel. Here's all the things that I once was, but here's how God brought me through it. And I want God to get glory from that. And it wasn't somebody saying, please don't ever tell anybody that I did those things. It was somebody saying, please give me an opportunity to share those things so that God's name can be great. Oh, that's the power of the gospel, friend. It has the ability to change lives. Once I graduated high school, one of my, my friends in high school, we joined the Navy together and went to, to, to boot camp on the buddy program. But after, after boot camp, we never really connected and I never really stayed in touch with anybody that I went to high school with at all. And I, I got a Facebook message from a person I went to high school with several years ago saying that, that my friend that I'd gone to boot camp with was experiencing liver failure and was only had months to live. And so I reached out to him and we began to talk and stuff like that and catch up. And I wanted to share the gospel with him if he's going to be, uh, if his life was going to be over soon and reach out to him that way. And, and um, he, said, he said, where are you living these days? I said, I'm living in Hawaii, man. And he said, he said, oh, that's awesome. He said, he said, what are you doing for work? You still in the Navy? I said, no, man, I did my six and I was done. And I said, but I said, I'm a pastor now. Long silence on the other end of the phone. <laughs> what do you really do? I'm a pastor. And he goes, who in the world would put you in charge of a church? And I said, well, nobody. We had to start our own because nobody would actually put me in charge of a church. <laughs> and so he goes, wow. He goes, yeah, I don't really see you as the pastor type. And I go, that's the great thing about it. I don't either. Uh, and the good news is, is that I'm not the guy that you knew when we were 18. I'm a totally different guy now. I began to share the gospel with him. He didn't get saved then. Went through some other hardships in life and ended up getting plugged into a program where he found Jesus and got saved. And I'm thankful for that. But I remember him thinking to myself, I don't really see you as pastor material. Yeah, I'm not pastor material. But the gospel can change anybody. The gospel can make anybody useful to the cause of Christ because there's power in the gospel. But if we want to see the power of the gospel lived out, we have to live a life that's consistent with the word of God. Angela and I, about 20 years ago, when we begun our, our period of kind of growth as Christians, again, we, we, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have a clue. But we, we'd heard a message one Sunday night about obedience, and I remember she and I had gone down and, and prayed together. And I didn't, again, I wasn't a great prayer at that time, didn't really know what to say, but I, I remember having my arm around her and, and saying this, God, whatever you tell us to do from here on out, we're just gonna do it. And I tried to think of something big and meaningful and powerful to say after that. I didn't, couldn't think of anything, so I just said, amen. God, whatever you tell us to do from here on out, we're just gonna do it, amen. And I went back and sat back down. Friend, that altered the course of my life. It altered the course of our marriage. It changed the way that we would raise our children. It changed the hopes and dreams and goals and aspirations that we would have for our whole family. It changed the rest of our family tree. That one decision, 
whatever this book says, I'm going to do it. Oh, man. There have been times in my life where that was very, very difficult to live out. But I remember that commitment to do what God says and follow his word. I'm telling you this, the greatest joy in your life will come through obedience to God and his word. The greatest joy in your life will come through obedience. I, I just can't stress that enough. I sat down sharing the gospel with a guy two weeks ago. He said, you know, I just, I like the idea of God. I like the idea of Jesus coming and paying for my sin, stuff like that. And he said, just some stuff in the Bible that, that I don't agree with, that I don't like, that make me feel uncomfortable. And I said, good. I said, what do you mean good? Because there's things in the Bible that I don't like, that I don't agree with, that I find uncomfortable. Look, if I were going to start my own religion, I would probably do things a little bit differently, right? But here's the thing. I'm not God. God is. And so I had to choose for all the things that I don't like, I'm going to put myself under the submission and authority of my father who knows better than I do. I don't like it. I might never like it, but I choose to obey it because my father said so. <laughs> my daughter, McKeeley, last night, uh, we were, uh, Saturday nights are usually really chill around our house. Um, and so we're sitting around and I said, McKinley, have you had dinner yet? She said, no, not yet. I said, you should probably get something to eat. She said, okay. So she goes over to the pantry. She's digging around in there. I said, okay. And I said, what are you going to have for dinner? She said, Oreos. <laughs> Sweetheart, that's not dinner. No, I can eat a lot of them. No. <laughs> it doesn't make it dinner if you eat more Oreos, right? I love that idea, though. Oh, that, wouldn't that be awesome? No, you can't eat Oreos for dinner. And so, like a typical 12-year-old, she stands there and goes, oh, we have nothing to eat in this house. <laughs> Sweetheart, we got plenty of stuff to eat in this house. No, we don't. There's nothing to eat in this house. And so I ended up making chicken for her for dinner, and she, ate, she loved it. She ate it, and at the end of it, she was like, oh, that was so good. And I go, it was better than Oreos, wasn't it? She goes, it was better than Oreos, Dad. Oh, wow, look. Your dad knew what he was talking about, right? But you and I, we want to eat spiritual junk food. And when our friends want to argue with him and gripe about it, but our father knows what's best. And our father wants to give us what's best for us. We just have to be obedient. And so I'm telling you this, follow after God's word like never before. See, when it comes to living a life that's consistent with the word of God, religious practices aren't enough. The word needs to get into my heart and soul and change my life. It's not enough to just do religious stuff. Over and over, let me just say this, the most damaging thing to the Christian home, the Christian family, and the Christian life I'm going to say this with 100% authority based on my own personal experience. Number one danger to the Christian home is pornography, period, end of story. You can talk about extramarital affairs and, and homosexuality and things along those lines. The majority of Christians' homes will, will be wrecked and ravaged by pornography. And so many times I talk with guys who struggle with pornography. I say, hey, man, what do we need to do to fix this? What do we need to do to change this? And without fail, I've had a dozen guys tell me, you know, I think I just need to pray more. 
don't pray enough. Do you think that's going to fix it? How often do you pray? Well, I pray you know, two or three minutes in the morning. So if you stretch that out to 10 minutes, you think your pornography addiction is going to go away? Well, I just, I, I don't know. I, maybe I should, well, should I read the Bible more? And we begin immediately to jump to spiritual things that are supposed to fix it. But the problem is not, I don't pray enough or I don't read the Bible enough. The problem is my heart is wicked, carnal, and dark. And I've got to change my heart. Now, part of changing my heart will be time in the Word and time in prayer for sure, but I gotta get down deep in this, not just surface-level stuff, deep. Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I follow after the things that I have? Why does this have my heart? I need to get down deep in that. And look, there's, there's been people that I've encouraged to, to seek professional help for their addictions that they deal with because it's more than just showing up to more often. I think if I was consistent to church on, on Sunday mornings, I wouldn't have to deal with this. No, religious practices aren't enough to change our heart. Now, do you need to be in the Bible? Every single day, read the Bible. But I want you to read the Bible, not because I'm trying to, to add another thing to your to-do list or because I'm trying to give you busy work. Read the Bible so that you know what's expected of you. Oh, this is what God wants me to do. Got it. Read the Bible for wisdom Never read the Bible for information. Read the Bible for application. What am I supposed to get from this? There's not a single time that I open the Bible in my daily devotions that I don't first stop and pray. God, speak to me through your word and whatever I need to change, make it very clear. And I'm telling you, almost without fail, God makes it very, very clear. I was just reading this past week in 2 Samuel about how David had sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet had to confront him on his sin. Oh, there's a guy who stole this guy's sheep and, and killed it for himself. This guy only had one sheep and he took it. What should happen? David said, man, put the guy to death. Nathan said, you're the guy. You're the man. And David was broken by his own sinful condition. I read that story, and again, we can look at that as a story like, oh, cool story. Wow, that's neat. Shame that David did that. No, I read that story and I thought, God, please help me to never get so cold to your Holy Spirit that I need somebody to point out my sin for me. Help me never to hurt the name of Christ so badly that someone has to come to me and say, bro, you're hurting the name of Christ. And as I read that, I thought to myself, what can I apply here? And you get a trace back in David's story. And David, it was the time where kings were supposed to go to battle, but David decided to stay home. David went out on his balcony and saw a woman bathing herself and he took a look and he didn't turn around and shut the door. He continued to look and then he called somebody and said, hey, that lady over there, go get her for me. Oh, that's Uriah's wife. I don't care. Go get her. And as I read through the story of David, David had at least a half dozen areas where he could have said, stop, David, knock it off. Don't do this. He just plowed forward every single time. And as I read that story, I thought to myself, are there any red flags that God has placed in my life that I'm just totally blowing past? That's nothing to do with today's message, what I got from that. I'm trying to tell you, don't read the Bible for information, read it for application. Don't read it as like, oh, cool story. What am I supposed to get from this? Our lives should be different because of our time in the word. I want the Bible to transform your life. James in James chapter four says, you believe in God, prove it by the way that you live your life. You say you have works, or you say you have faith, let me my faith by my works. 
let me show you how my faith changes my life, the way that I Because James said this, faith without works, a faith that never really changed your life or the way that you live, a faith without works is, help me with it, what did he say? Dead, useless, worthless, cut it off, move on. Look, if you're not living a distinctly different life as a Christian, as opposed to an unsaved person, you're not living a life that's becoming the gospel of Christ. Hypocrisy, damaging. I've known people before who say like, I don't wanna be a Christian because I don't wanna be a hypocrite. A friend of hypocrisy because the church is full of hypocrites. It's important to define our terms of what hypocrisy truly means. And look, if you're a Christian who's trying and you sin, that doesn't make you a hypocrite, that just makes you human. The Greek word that you use for hypocrisy in the Bible is one who wears a mask. So I put on a front of being a follower of Jesus, a child of God, I call myself a Christian. I might even put a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on the back of my car, but I know who I am inside. I don't have a desire for the things of God. I'm steeped in my own sin. I'm hiding things that I don't want ever to come to light because I wanna keep up the facade. I wanna keep on the mask of being a good Christian, but I don't desire the things of God. I don't want the things of God. I just need to keep up the appearances. That's hypocrisy. Friend, you're not a hypocrite if you lost your cool this week. You're not a hypocrite if somebody pulled out in front of you and you thought, thought you shouldn't think. Yesterday, I was had 10 million things on my mind and I was super frustrated by some other things that were going on and I was, I was banging out an email and my wife was standing over my shoulder reading my email and she corrected my grammar and told me to put some things in that I didn't put. And I said, I think I'm good, thanks. And she said, you don't have to raise your voice. I didn't raise my voice, but I'm getting ready to if you don't stop. I, I don't need a proofreader for my emails. And she said, don't treat me that way. And she walked out. Treat you that way? Oh, it's frustrating. Does that make me a hypocrite? No, it just means I'm a human. And you know what I did? Afterwards, I, went, I said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have looked. And she's like, it's fine. No, I want you to know. She's like, I've already forgiven you. It's fine. But I was so frustrated. Does that make me a hypocrite? No. And so many times people, are, we're, we're our own worst critics. So we're like, well, I don't even want to try because I know I'm going to fail. That's not hypocrisy. That's just regular Christian living. But when you choose to live a life of sin and you choose to repeat your sin again and again and you choose to go back to your sin time and time and time again, that is hypocrisy. Yet keep on the shield that everything's okay. There's a man who was coming to our church. We were maybe a year, 18 months old at the time and he began coming to, to church with his girlfriend uh, at the time, and she was a, a Christian. He was a professing atheist. And so I said, hey, let's go grab lunch sometime. So we went and grabbed lunch and uh, sit down talking and stuff like that. And, and so I said, hey, when did you quit believing in God? What do you mean? I said, well, you say you're an atheist. I said, when did you quit believing? How do you know I ever believed? Well, Romans chapter one says that God's revealed himself into all men so that they're without excuse. So everybody believes in God at some point. 
But what I've generally seen with atheists is there became a point in time in their life where they quit believing because they felt like God let them down or disappointed them. And he said, well, I grew up in church. Really? Tell me more. He said, my parents were involved in youth ministry and he said, you know, they, we'd have these Wednesday night, you know, get-togethers and, and teen Bible study. We'd sing songs and stuff like that. My parents led all of it, led all the games and everything. We'd go to camp and, like, my parents the whole week at camp were, you know, running the camp and stuff like that. He said, but every single time we got back in the car, I heard my mom and dad run down people in the church. My dad would get home. He would cuss. He would drink. He would get drunk. He'd be terrible to my mom. And he said, but... And come Wednesday night for, for teen Bible study, it was all smiles and everybody was happy. And I just realized at that point, God is fake and Christians are fake. And he said, and I was done with it. I said, how old were you? He said, probably 13. Hmm. So here I'm talking to an adult man who's probably 30, whose entire faith was wrecked by hypocrisy. People who claimed to be one thing on the outside, but at home were totally different people. Hypocrisy is so incredibly damaging. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse number 21, Thou therefore which teachest another, teach thou not thyself. In other words, you're trying to teach everybody else, but you're not even teaching yourself. Thou that preachest that a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast to the law, to the breaking dishonest thou God? Here's what he says, you you have rules for everybody else, but you don't follow them yourself. You tell people not to commit adultery, but you commit adultery. You tell people not to steal, but you steal. You tell people not to make idols, but you've committed sacrilege. And here's what he says. This is the most harmful thing. Verse 24 says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. You've caused people to curse the name of God because of the way that you live. Shame on you, he says. You call yourself a Christian, but you don't back it up. You call people to follow God's guidelines, but you don't follow them. You have caused people to curse the name of God. And let me just tell you this. Hypocritical Christians make it 10 times more difficult for authentic Christians. Oh, you're a Christian? Yeah, I've seen that before. <laughs> yeah, I've seen how that goes before. Mm-hmm. Friend I was talking to the other day, he said his daughter's on a uh, dating website and she put in her dating profile at the very top. Follower of Jesus, no premarital sex. And this guy invites her out on a date. First date, he says to her, hey, I know your profile said that you were a Christian and no premarital sex. Did you really mean that? And she goes, absolutely. And he goes, yeah, see, that's going to be a no for me. It's not really my thing. But, I kind of said it in my profile. Oh, I know everybody says that. Oh, I see. So hypocritical Christians who say things but don't actually do it make it difficult for the people who really are. And the guy left, and, and I told the guy, good for her. You know, separate the men from the boys at that point, you know. These are the people you do not want to spend the rest of your life with who want one thing from you. You say, wow, that's really extreme. Christians are called to be different. And this guy was telling me, I don't, I don't necessarily like the fact that she put no premarital sex in her profile. I love it. She's setting ground rules from the very, very beginning. But here's the thing. 
for all the the guys, uh, for all the girls that this guy's dated that called themselves Christians, but really were interested in premarital sex, makes it difficult for the people who say, I want to live according to God's guidelines. For those of us that call ourselves Christians, yet hypocritical Christians come along and ruin it for everybody else, makes it more difficult to call yourself a Christian. And if you follow the news, the news media loves to jump on hypocritical Christians. Two weeks ago, it came out news that uh, a man by the name of Daniel Chalmers, who was a on pastoral staff at a Catch the Fire church in Raleigh, North Carolina, which we would not agree with. Uh, they would be a Pentecostal church. He was arrested October 12th when he urinated on a woman on a Delta flight from Las Vegas to Detroit. His blood alcohol content was 0.17, twice the legal limit of drunkenness in any state. So you have a pastor who doesn't get drunk on a flight, gets trashed on a flight, and urinates on a woman. What's the story? Is it the story Raleigh, North Carolina man? No, the story is pastor. This past week, I was deeply grieved by Hillsong pastor in, North, in New York City, Carl Lentz. We would not agree with Hillsong either from a doctrinal perspective, but anytime when someone calls themselves a Christian yet fails miserably, it hurts the cause of Christ and it hurts my heart. Hillsong Church made a statement that he had been fired for and terminated for moral failures. And he came out later and admitted to the fact that he had been unfaithful to his wife. And let me tell you, the, the media gobbled that up. Social media loved it, went nuts, because one person says, and they say that LGBT ruins the family. Oh, great. Now people are mocking Christianity because we take a stance against, against anything outside of biblical marriage. You have a guy who claims to be a pastor and a follower of Christ who can't follow Christ. And what happens? The name of God is blasphemed amongst unbelievers. One other person says, I, for one, am shocked that the blank-looking pastor that only hangs out with celebrities and preaches at anti-LGBTQ church cheated on his wife. Shocked. Again, now what happens? The name of God is blasphemed because this man wants to fail in his marriage. And again, I saw problems running a mile deep with Hillsong Church and everything that they have going on. This guy is a pastor to quote celebrities and claims to be a celebrity pastor. GQ did an article on uh, him three years ago about how he uh, dresses really well and the, the clothes that he wears and the expensive shoes that he's involved with and how he uh, parties at clubs with celebrities and things along those lines. Hey, look, I can see that that's a train running for failure. But here's the problem. Hypocrisy ruled and the blow up was massive. Pastor John Gray from Greenville, South Carolina, the relentless church admitted beginning of last year that he had been involved in an adulterous affair, continued to pastor, which is 100% against scripture, and then admits again just three months ago that he was involved in another extramarital affair. This time, a different time, different woman, different situation, yet still continues to pastor in blatant violation of scripture. And let me tell you, these articles are not from Christian news organizations. These are from mainstream media organizations because they love to see Christians fail because it points out what everybody in the unsaved world says anyways, that Christians are hypocrites. And again, these scandals come faster than we have a chance to, to process them. Another pastor cheated on his wife, Jerry Falwell Jr., who is the president of Liberty College, a Christian university, got fired due to a sex scandal. 
And to make matters worse, when Liberty cut him loose from a, quote, Christian university for, for inappropriate behavior, he left with a $10 million severance package. Wait, what? So this just goes to show, are Christians really harsh on sin? Or we're only harsh on the sins that we want to be harsh on? Blatant hypocrisy. And here's the thing. Why did the mainstream news even care about stuff like this? You know why? Because even the unsaved man knows that Christians should be different. Even unsaved people know that. Christians shouldn't be involved in this. So Christians aren't immune to hypocrisy. Paul says, let your lives be lives that are becoming of the gospel of Christ. Now to live a life that's consistent with the word of God requires for us to be different from the world. You take a look at these pastors, Christian celebrities, whatever you want to call them, that torpedoed their lives. You know what happened? At some point, they became way too friendly with the world and less friendly with God. The Bible calls us to be not of this world. One author put it this way, today the greatest challenge facing American Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction from the world. We think it's okay to be more like the world and less like Jesus because it's a different time. We wanna be cool, we wanna connect. And I can't tell you the number of churches in America and unfortunately we've exported this garbage to other countries as well. The churches wanna be real and relevant. That means the pastors can use crude language, crude speech, pastors that curse from the pulpit, pastors who throw back beer while they talk about the Bible so that we can be cool and we can be real and we can be relevant. Hey, how about you just be biblical? That would be great. Because here's, here's the great thing, all these churches trying to be relevant. And to, to be relevant, their pastors dress like they, they ran through a dressing room at Hot Topic with bedazzled jeans and embroidered eagles all over the front and bracelets with spikes on them. Like, no lie. My wife, no lie. My wife used to get her hair done at a hairdresser who the chair next to her was a prominent Hawaii pastor who would come and get his hair done and his makeup done for church on Sunday. Really? Like, I'm all for getting a good haircut. I like a good haircut, but hair and makeup for church because it's a performance. It's a guy who's in his 60s who's dressing like he's 14. Do we need to do that to be relevant? Let me tell you something. God's word is always relevant. Always. You get a guy who comes up here in a, a robe down to his ankles and he preaches God's word, that is as relevant as relevant gets. You got a guy that comes up here in a space suit, preaches God's word, that's as relevant as it gets. But the problem comes when we want to adopt the lifestyle that the world has. Word, we cannot be led by what we see and what we feel. If you want to live authentic Christianity, you cannot be led by what you see and what you feel. 
The life is the, the world is set up to cause you to fail. My son and I, Vanderlei, were at the uh, international market. Man, this is probably a year or so ago. And there in the corner of the international market is the uh, Tesla showroom. I was like, Dad, let's go in and look at the Tesla. I was like, all right, that's cool. And so we go in and we sit down in, in the Tesla SUV. Oh, my soul. Got the gull wing doors that open up and everything's touch screen on the inside. And we sit down and I've, I've never sat in a Tesla before. And so you look up and it's like clear like windshield all the way back behind you, what you can see. So you imagine yourself like driving down and being able to see palm trees going over through, over the top. And you push the touch screen and it comes to life over there and you can, can see your Spotify playlist on there and things like that. You can send messages through there. It's just like, oh, this is awesome. Then I can begin to think about what it would feel like to drive something like that, how cool it would be. And I begin to picture myself driving down the road, seeing people see me, like waving, like, hey, what's up, guys? This is my new Tesla, hey? And all these feelings that I had, what happened? I just sat in that car for like 90 seconds, and my mind immediately started going the way that the world wants me to think. And you know what? Look, I see 100 Teslas drive by here every single day, and you know what I think when I, when I see them drive by? Absolutely nothing. Doesn't even register. But for that split second of time, I thought to myself, that would be awesome. I was, um, my wife was watching election coverage, which we watched way too much of this week. Um, and there was a, a commercial for the electric Hummer. What? I didn't know I needed that until now. Tell me more. And like as it's going, I was like, an EV Hummer, like is that even a thing? Like could you like even, and the moment that I think like, could you drive an EV Hummer anywhere? It like busts through this big like iceberg and it's running through the snow. And I'm like, oh, that is awesome. Like, I don't even like the snow, but if I had a Hummer, I would totally drive it in the snow. And then it's just like, whoa, Hummer. And then what do I do? I pull out my phone and I type in Hummer EV. Guess what? I just bought it hook, line, and sinker. I didn't even know it existed 30 seconds ago, but now I need it. Boom, just like that. And look, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The world has set you up to fail. Look, if your marriage isn't a marriage where you guys bake chocolate chip cookies in the kitchen and dab flour on the end of each other's noses while your husband picks you up by your waist and spins you in circles. You think like, our marriage is trash, man. Seriously. You think like, I just want romance. And then the world tells you, well, maybe you married the wrong person. You can find the right person. And you think, might think, well, I'm too old. And then comes on a commercial for old people dating apps, you know? It's just like, there's an answer for everything. Because the world has set you up to fail. It wants to draw your heart away from the things of God. Don't, don't buy into it. Stay the course. We can't be led by the things that we see and feel because the Bible says that God's word must be our guide, not our feelings, not our emotions, not what we see. And again, we live in a society today where we want to be, people are going to slap us with labels if we don't follow the herd. I've got to be willing to stand alone. And the good news is when I stand alone, I don't stand alone because I stand with God with me and I stand with other Christian brothers and sisters with me so I can go against the grain. I can live 
consistently with God's word, don't love the world. Uh, the Bible also says that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. You know that you cannot be a friend of God and be a friend of the world at the same time? You just can't. You gotta pick a side. And look, when we have church where unsaved people feel welcome and they can sit for months and years at a time and not feel conviction over their sin, when we have churches that are built for people to come and never have to confront their shortcomings before God, we've set them up for failure. It grieves me when I hear pastors say things like, we don't like to talk about sin because that hurts people's feelings. Friends, you can't talk about the gospel if you talk, go and talk about sin. If you don't talk about the gospel, you're not even really a church. Oh, everybody's welcome here. Come as you are, stay, or stay as you are. No, the gospel is a transforming message that you can come as you are, but you cannot stay as you are. You have to change. Well, I don't want to be just like you. You don't have to be like me. You have to be like Jesus. Don't love the world. That's not a suggestion. That's a Bible command. Our lives have to stand in stark contrast to the lives of of the unsaved world. You gotta be different. It means to have a life that is becoming of the gospel of Christ. You gotta be different. And let me just tell you this. It doesn't take a lot to be different in our day and age as far as biblical living goes. If you at work don't cuss, that automatically makes you different, period. Just the way that you talk. If you're kind and respectful and don't gossip, automatically different that puts you in your own category. If you're faithful to your spouse, automatically in a different category all by yourself. I remember when I was first joined the Navy, uh, the very first duty station that I had in the Navy, the senior chief that I worked for was a Christian and um, actually met him at church and I uh, worked for him, awesome guy. Guys being, start cursing our workspace. Hey, guys, we don't talk like that in this workspace. Watch your mouth. Whoa, this guy's serious. He always let it be known that he was a Christian. If people needed to switch their duties around because of uh, going to church, he always tried to accommodate that because he wanted them to be able to live out their faith. He always prayed before meals that we would have and stuff like that. It was just solid, solid Christian dude. Always did the right thing. There's another guy in my office. His name was Derbert. I'll never forget Derbert as long as I live. He told me, Anthony, don't ever get married, ever. Well, that's terrible advice. I've been married four times. I know all about it. Just don't ever do it. Okay. And he goes, I'm telling you this. Everybody who's married is miserable. Everybody. Okay. And he says, and I'm telling you this too. Everybody who ever gets married cheats. Like everybody. And it's just like a known fact. Everybody cheats. Nobody's faithful. So why even bother? It's just extra paperwork, extra headache, extra trouble. He said, just don't do it. Everybody cheats. Everybody knows it. And just that's just the way life is. Well, I don't think. I'm, Anthony, I've never met a guy who's never cheated on his wife. I've never, ever in my entire life. I've never known a woman who didn't cheat on her husband, ever. This is just the way things are. So just save yourself the heartache. Don't ever get married. Okay. 
But I'm looking at him over here in the exact same workspace, and I look over here, and I see a senior chief that loves Jesus, loves his wife, loves his family, goes to church, raises his kids, is faithful to his family. And I look at those, and I say, which one of these is the more appealing path for me? Which of these guys am I going to listen to their guidance and counsel? I think I want to choose the guy who's an authentic Christian. And I'm telling you this, their lives could not have been more starkly different. And I think that's what God causes, calls us to be when Jesus says that we're to be salt and light. You, you don't have to ever wonder, is the light on or not? It's either on or it's off. And either you're living for Jesus or you're not. It should be very, very clear to those around you that we're living consistent, authentic Christianity. Imagine this. Imagine I have two folders in front of me. Inside those folders, there's no names, but there is the email messages that have been sent, internet history, movies watched in the last 60 days, text messages sent in the last 60 days, music playlists, hobbies, goals, interests, dreams, plans for the rest of their life. Imagine I have two folders, no names, all, those, all that information. One of them's yours, one of them's your unsaved neighbor. Flip those open. Would, would I be able to see which one was you? Would I be able to tell them apart, the movies that you watch, the text messages you sent, the people you spend time with, your goals that you have for life? Would I be able to tell your goals apart from your unsaved neighbor? If the answer to that is no, you really need a heart checkup. Because it should be so crazy different that it's incredibly obvious. One of the men in our church was, they were looking to hire somebody for a particular position. This lady sent in a resume that he said, she didn't say anywhere on her resume that she was a Christian, but I knew she was a Christian, automatic. Just the words that she was using, the things that she said that she valued, I thought, this person's either a Christian or a Mormon. Those are the only two options. And he said, and come to find out, you know, I said, tell me a little bit about your family. She said, so I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm a person of faith and that drives everything I do. And he said, within 15 seconds opening that interview, I knew for a fact, done. I knew it, I knew it. And I thought to myself, listing someone's professional achievements and education, if you're so full of Jesus Christ, it's gonna bleed over to every area of your life. You can't get around it. But here's the question, is there enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? There should be. And again, if you're living your life in a way that, that befits the gospel of Christ, as this passage says, when people find out you're a Christian, it's like, oh, well, that explains it. Hello. Okay, it all makes sense now. I remember there's a, a Angel and I were at a shop in the North Shore um, this was probably a year and a half or so ago. I was talking with a girl there, and she, she said, where do you guys live? And I said, oh, we live in town. And she goes, I'm new to the island. Does that mean Honolulu? And I go, it does. And I said, where did you move from? She said, I moved from Idaho. I said, wow, I don't know anything about Idaho except potatoes. And she goes, well, that's about all there is. Okay, good. And I said, um, what brings you out to Hawaii? And she said, well, my boyfriend's in the Army, and so, so I moved out here to be a little bit closer to him uh, and stuff like that. She said, I live up here in Haleiwa, and, and he lives um, in town. 
at the town, is that what you call it? The town, sure. Okay, good. She said, so we don't really get to see each other that much because you know, I'm, I'm up here on the North Shore working. He lives in town. He's got work and stuff too. And I said, are you a Christian? She goes, yeah, why? I said, because you moved here from Idaho. You're living on one side of the island. He's living on the other. And you so say you don't see each other. That means you're not living together and staying together. And she goes, I just want to do things the right way. I figured out in a 15-second conversation this person was a believer. Why? Because her life was so different than the rest of the world. So different. I'm telling you this. I want you to live a life that is so distinctly Christian that people are like, oh, well, that makes sense. It's obvious because that's the type of life that befits or is becoming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Final thoughts here. We're done. If we seek to live like Jesus, we have to be different. <laughs> this means different from who we already are and different from the rest of the world. Two weeks ago, uh, I got an email from Brian Anderson who leads our Single Adults Connect group. And he said, Pastor, I got some things going on on Friday. Would you be able to teach our single adults? Yeah, man, sure. He said, we're talking about Christian dating. I said, okay. And he goes, here's the lesson. Brian, if I want to talk on Christian dating, I don't need a lesson from you, but thank you for thinking of me, Brian. That was very nice. And so, um, and so I'm thinking to myself, this is such an important topic. I want all of our single adults to know this. And so I sent an email to all of our singles, some of them which don't even attend the Singles uh, Connect group, and I say, hey, I'm teaching on, on Christian dating. You should totally come and check this out and bring a friend if you want to, a really important topic, you know, and I'll be there if you want to ask any questions at all at the end. I'll be happy to answer any questions that you have about dating or anything else in life. And I thought, man, that'll get people to come. It started at 6.30. At 6.35, we had like two people on. I thought, I shouldn't have told anybody I was teaching. I just kept it a secret, you know. But by, as single people do, they, they, they filter it in later. But we talked about Christian dating. And somebody might be scratching their head going, Christian dating, is that different than like regular dating? Yeah, totally different. Like the opposite of regular dating. Regular dating is... Let me find somebody who can make me happy for a night, a week, a month. I don't care. And when I'm done, I'm going to discard them and move on to the next person. After I've squeezed everything out of this person that I want, I'm going to bounce on to the next person that can give me what I need out of life. And I'm going to do that until I decide that I don't want to do it anymore. And I find somebody that I might be able to tolerate for the rest of my life. And if I can't tolerate them, I'll just divorce them and move on to the next that's different than Christian dating when I say, is this a person I can see with myself with for the rest of my life? I don't want to protect my heart. I want to protect my sexual purity in such a way that I don't cross any boundaries that God has set up for my greater joy. And as I seek after that, if I find that this person is a good fit for me, we're going to continue to pursue a meaningful relationship that's founded on Jesus Christ that leads us towards eventually marriage. And if this person is not the person for me, we're just friends and we're going to bounce and find somebody else. Christian dating, totally different in the way that we do things. You know why? Because Christians are different. We don't, we don't buy into the world's way of doing things. So that also means we have to be different from the way that we are naturally. That's why we need the Word of God to change us and to sanctify us and help us to be more like Jesus Christ. Next, our distinctly different lives should draw other people to Jesus. Here's the thing, if your life does not draw people to Jesus, there's a good possibility it could repel people from Jesus. My mom got saved when she was 16 years old and she asked my mom, had you heard the gospel before that? She said, 
I just didn't think that I needed it because I knew a lot of girls who claimed to be Christian and I was better morally than they were. And so I didn't really see a need to be saved. Testimony of a teenager had hurt the gospel witness. I'm thankful for, for men in our church that follow after Jesus consistently. Where there's a, a single black I love a single guy who was part of our church for several years ago. And he was like, he was like, Pastor, he said, oh, I touched down in Thailand. And he goes, and I'm sitting at the taxi stand. And he said, the guy three down, three people down from me had a hui call a sticker on his suitcase. And I'm thinking like, these people are everywhere. <laughs> and he goes, I'm like, I wanted to like ask him like, do you know that you go to my church? And I said, that's Larry Gregory. He's been in our church since the beginning, and so technically you kind of go to his church. And he was like, oh. He was like, how do you know that's him? And I said, well, first of all, I know because Larry's in Thailand this week, but I also know that Larry has on his, his suitcase who he calls stickers everywhere. And I was thankful that here's a guy who touched down in Thailand and wasn't kicking back beers at the airport with a who he calls sticker on his suitcase. Wasn't messing around with some young soldier girl that was on his flight there, just sitting there, waiting on his taxi, doing his job, faithfully representing Jesus. I love that. Love it. And here's the thing. If you're living a consistently Christian life, you won't ever have to look over your shoulder and wonder who's watching. You don't have to wonder about getting caught. You don't have to worry about, did anybody see me do that? Or did anybody see me go out of there? Or did anybody see me buy that? No, no. If you're just living a consistently Christian life, you don't have to worry about any of that. So you want to live a life that draws people to Jesus. Next, our distinctively different life should back up the gospel message. Hey, I'm proof that God can save anybody. I'm proof that God can change anybody. I'm proof that once Jesus gets a hold of you, you'll never be the same again for the rest of your life. I'm proof that Jesus saves sinners. My life backs that up. My marriage is different because of my faith in Jesus. My children are different because of my faith in Jesus. What I do as a vocation is different because of my faith in Jesus. It changed every aspect of my life and there's no area of my life that is left untouched by my faith in Jesus. The type of music that I listen to now is different. The type of entertainment I find acceptable is different because of my faith in Jesus because it changed everything. And that's what the gospel message is. Jesus saves sinners and changes them. Next, final thought. A decision to live a godly, righteous life require a course correction. There might be some things you gotta change. There might be some sin you need to confess. There might be some hobbies you need to leave behind. There might be interests that you really, really like, but you have to say, following Jesus is more important. You might need to repent. You might need to repent to God of sin may need to repent to your spouse if things you've done wrong, the way that you've been living. You might need to repent to some coworkers and say, hey guys, I'm a Christian, but I haven't been living like it. I'm really sorry. I remember when I started making a decision to really follow after Jesus. I had to go to some coworkers that I work with and say, hey guys, I'm a Christian. I haven't been living like it. And I remember their puzzled look on their face. Like, yeah, bro, it's fine, whatever. No, it's not fine. And I want you to know that I'm sorry. Christians shouldn't live the way that I've, I've been living, and I want you to know that I'm really trying to change, and I apologize. 
Oh, you don't apologize to me. Everything's cool. Okay. I just wanted to put that out there. And I don't know if, I know God wanted me to do it, but I don't know if it helped them more or it helped me more. I was helped by it. There might be some things you got to change. And look, I never told you the Christian life would be easy, but I can tell you it will be helpful and it will be filled full of joy if you do it God's way. Look, getting rid of all the music that I had amassed my entire life, that was hard. It was painful. I did not enjoy that. I'm telling you this almost 20 years later. I don't regret it a day in my life. and I'm a better man because of it. So maybe there's some things you need to change, some areas you need to, to let go. One of my friends is telling me he made a decision to, to stop drinking alcohol. And he said, I made a decision that I don't want that anymore. And he said, I didn't think that I needed it. And he said, but I would, I would use the excuse. It helps me unwind. It gets, calms my nerves. And he found out I relied on it way too much, he said. He said, you know what I got back? I got Saturday mornings with my kids. I had time with my spouse. I got peace. He said, it was worth it. Man, things like that just flood my heart with joy because you find somebody who says, hey, pursuing Jesus is the best. And what the world has is a lie. And so maybe there's some things you need to change. I'm telling you this, if you change them for the cause of Christ, I guarantee you it'll be the best decision you've ever made in your life. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, say, Pastor, I don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I died today that I'm going to heaven. Please be here without knowing for sure that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. Most important decision you'll ever make. But for those of us that are Christians, let's actually live like it this week. I think we have a golden opportunity with everything that's going on in the United States of America right now to shine bright as kind, loving, generous Christians. I don't care who's president. I don't care who you voted for. I love you. I care about you. I can treat you with decency, kindness, and respect. Not because of the way you treated me or or how you voted, but because of who God is and who he's allowed me to be. Oh, man. Christians, we got a golden opportunity to show people what the gospel does in people's lives. Let's do it this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.